to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com okay i'm usually advertising for other companies but i really want to promote an event that i am co-hosting coming up called into pleasure that features a lot of past guests i would love to see you slutty scholars there virtually that is you can find all of the info and buy tickets at intopleasure.com the event is open to women and any marginalized genders and right now the early bird which is lasting until march 21st full day is only 97 dollars. into pleasure was created by past podcast guest burlesque star Michelle Lamour. It is an all virtual event happening on April 2nd from 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. On April 2nd, we'll we, we will dive into pleasure. We will learn from experts about sexuality, sensuality, and play. Absolutely no experience required. These classes are great if you are just starting your pleasure journey or if you are a pleasure pro. Join us for a full day of activities or you can pick and choose your own pleasure classes a la carte. I will be speaking along Side past podcast guests Goddess Coco Meow and Javay DeBay, as well as Michelle Lamore and this amazing bondage duo named Leaf and Icarus. All of the sessions are super interactive and cover everything from beauty rituals to kink and rope tying and even sensual movement. We'll also be having a great virtual goodie bag featuring some really amazing advertisers. So come get into pleasure with me and get your early bird discount tickets now at intopleasure.com. Hope to see you there. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm excited to welcome Ifetayo Harvey, and she is the founder and board president at the People of Color Psychedelic Collective. Her experience of growing up with her father in prison brought her to drug policy reform work at the Drug Policy Alliance. In 2013, Ifetayo was the opening plenary speaker at the International Drug Policy Reform Conference in Denver, Colorado. She briefly worked at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies back in 2015, where she was inspired by Kai Wingo's Women and Ethiogens Conference in Cleveland, Ohio. Ifetayo worked at the Drug Policy Alliance for five years because of her passion for ending the war on drugs. While at the DPA, she penned the piece, why the Psychedelic Community is So White in 2016 and began organizing other folks of color and allies in psychedelic circles. She comes from a family of seven children raised by her mother in Charleston, South Carolina. And Carolina, <laughs> she has a bachelor's degree from Smith College in History and African Studies. Welcome, Ifetayo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad I came across you somehow with like random connections and friends and things. So if Atayo is actually going to be speaking at this awesome event that I'm working at coming up called the, uh, with the sexual health Alliance, where we're going to be talking about cannabis and other psychedelic assisted therapies. So, um, big fan so far and really glad to have you on the podcast. Yay. Awesome. Yes. I'm excited to work together and I'm excited for the event next month too. So I know you said it in your bio a little bit, but tell, tell us about your inspiration for starting this collective. Yeah, so I got into drug policy because of um, my experience of uh, my dad being incarcerated and then 
later being deported. And um, at the time, I was also dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety. I was um, going into my senior year of college. And when I got invited to speak at the Reform Conference in Denver, I went to a panel on um, psychedelics. It was my first time hearing about psychedelics being used in a therapeutic sense. And they discussed end-of-life therapy for um like I think LSD and I was like, Oh wow, this is interesting. And for me, I kind of related to that. Not that I was dying, but that anxiety that people with terminal illnesses were experiencing. So I decided, Oh, okay, well I need to try this for myself. And long story short, I ended up trying mushrooms for the first time. Um, in 2013, I ate three and a half grams and went to the woods and <laughs> had a very, um, you know, had a very dynamic journey. And um, at, even at that time, I didn't think that I would go into working a, with psychedelics, like in a, you know, professional capacity. I yeah. I wanted to be a high school history teacher. And uh, <laughs> I wasn't, I mean, yeah, I would, I would hope that in a, our future society, you could do both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing in our society, you can't, right? You can't, talk honestly about drugs or sex and, and teach young people. Uh, <laughs> so I ended up getting a job at MAPS, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, um, about a year or so after I graduated from college, being um, Rick Doblin's assistant. And um, I started just learning about psychedelics, and I was just wowed with all the possibilities for healing. Um, especially around MAPS's work with uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for people mm-hmm. with PTSD. Um, but ultimately, MAPS wasn't a good fit for me. Um, I was the only Black person who worked there at the time. And it was just, as you can imagine, awkward, uncomfortable for me. And <laughs> uh, I ended up leaving after eight months and found my way back to the Drug Policy Alliance in New York. But DPA wasn't really doing or prioritizing psychedelics. Um, so More I was like, like cannabis, cannabis, harm reduction, overdose prevention campaigns, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I, I still want to do work around psychedelics. And um, there were some attempts to create conversations um, for black folks and for folks of color uh, to talk about drug use in pleasurable ways, because we're so used to used to talking about it in like dysfunctional ways like oh this person has a bad relationship with x drug but yeah or, or they're or they're in jail because of drugs mm-hmm, right and we don't ever talk about why people really use drugs and that's because people derive pleasure from drugs um even if you know the relationship can become chaotic over time um at the root of it is people are trying to explain experience pleasure. And so I wanted to create a space where we could acknowledge that and also acknowledge that um, the war on drugs has harmed so many of us. And because of that, we, a lot of us have kind of a lot misconceptions around drugs. We're miseducated around drugs. So I want to create a space for people to educate themselves and then also, you know, talk about how a lot of these substances are fun (laughs) and that's okay. Um, 
and I in my bio I mentioned Kai Wingo. Kai was a uh, black woman from Cleveland. She was a mom of three, um, and she was a mushroom grower who had her own urban farm um, in the middle of Cleveland. And she had a conference um, back in 2015 called Women and Entheogens. And I attended on behalf of MAPS. And it was like the blackest psychedelic conference I <laughs> ever seen or ever heard of. And so I was so inspired by her because she was just so down to earth and, and open and just personable. And everyone there, there was a sense of community there. People wanted to help each other out and teach people new things. Um, so I wanted to kind of recreate more spaces like that um, over on yeah. the East Coast. I mean, I think the term like war on drugs uh, feels like kind of maybe broad for some people. Like when you say war on drugs, what are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of times when people say war on drugs, we think about police arresting people for using drugs or selling drugs or being drug involved, right? And that's one part of the war on drugs, but the drug war also extends to other parts of our society. So um, education, if you are a college student and you're caught using drugs on campus, you could be kicked out of school or you could lose your scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, if you are a drug user who needs public assistance like SNAP, um, you could be denied public assistance for using drugs. Um, even in the medical field, uh, in, in New York State at least, women are drug tested after they give birth. Uh, so if you, <laughs> I know, if you um, test positive for a drug like cannabis, you can have your kids taken away from you. And be reported to child abuse services. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, And I would imagine that the rate is probably much higher for people of color as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the other part of the drug war is that um, there are racial disparities. I think back in 2013, the ACLU did a report on um, cannabis criminalization showing that white people and black people use cannabis at the same rates. But in a lot of states, um, black people are two times, three times, four times more likely to be arrested um, for using cannabis. So not only are we criminalizing these substances across the board for everyone, but we're also uh, racializing <laughs> that criminalization by, you know, picking and choosing when we enforce these laws. Yeah. And, and from what I know, obviously, there are still lots of people who are incarcerated for now what would be legal amounts of cannabis. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's so important for uh, Congress to legalize cannabis on a federal level, because you know, over the past 10 years or so, we've been doing this like state by state legalization or decriminalization, and that's good, but it's also very slow. Mm. Um, and we, what do you think is better, legalization or decriminalization? Well, that's a good question. I think um, it depends on the substance, but yeah. in, in terms of cannabis, I think you have to have both. Um, it can't just be one or the other. And a lot of times people confuse decriminalization and legalization. So decriminalization is removing criminal penalties and then legalization mm -hmm. is creating commercial markets. So for example, in New York, um, 
cannabis was decriminalized in 1977, but because of a legal loophole, cops would use that to still criminalize mostly black and brown men. Um, that's where we get stop and frisk. Um, mm. So if they are able to do these illegal searches mm-hmm. and tell these guys to empty their pockets and then the weed is in plain sight, that's, yeah. that's technically breaking the law. When the wheat was in your pocket, it's not breaking the law. So that's why I say we need both. There's always a fucking loophole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why we need both to prevent the loopholes from happening because there will always be loopholes that uh, law enforcement looks for to criminalize people. Mm. And is there anything that you want folks to know about the current state of the war on drugs and drug policy and and how folks can get involved who are listening? Yeah. Yeah. I think last year, I mean, interesting, it's, we've made a lot of progress um, since the pandemic has started, even though there's still a lot of work to do. Um, Overdose deaths are up uh, since the pandemic started. But at the same time, um, New York just opened its first overdose prevention center, um, which, you know, allows drug users to come and use drugs safely. Um, And it saved hundreds of lives already. It's only been a couple months since that center has been open. Uh, Then we have Oregon. Oregon decriminalized drug use altogether. And then they also have this, uh, the psilocybin therapy program, which is still, you know, in the works um, in terms of implementation. So those are some exciting things happening. And I hope to see more states um, take that route, like Oregon, uh, like New York, you know, removing those criminal penalties, creating environments where people mm-hmm. um, aren't dying as much. And for folks who want to get involved, I always tell people the first place to start is just educating yourself. So following organizations like um, the Drug Policy Alliance, Harm Reduction Coalition, um, Dance Safe, organizations like mine, POC Psychedelic Collective, um, they're going to give you information on the policies, but also harm reduction information. So, you know, if you are using drugs, you know, whether it be cannabis, heroin, methamphetamine, mushrooms, MDMA, you can learn how to use it um, and be safe. So I think that's what's really important because I know we're all (laughs) traumatized from this pandemic and we're turning to new things to cope. Um, So it's less about judging people for how they cope, but ensuring safety. So back to the topic of like psychedelics, when we say psychedelics, what falls under that branch? Yeah, that's a I that's a great question because a lot of people argue about this. <laughs> mm. um, you know, some people identify the classic psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, um, ayahuasca, and then there's debates over whether MDMA is considered a psychedelic or ketamine. Um, ketamine. Um, There's also some people who would consider cannabis a psychedelic. Um, And I I personally am open, you know, I'm I'm not clinging to these uh, classification systems that we use. I think they are helpful to some extent, but I I think there is some fluidity there. It was funny because a few months ago I was at the dentist um, getting surgery and I never went under 
in my life. And that was my first time going under. And I was just like, whoa, why didn't no one tell me about these drugs? Because (laughs) this is amazing. Like I was, it was a very interesting experience for me. Like I was awake, but I wasn't. And then are we talking are we talking nitrous or the one where they like count down from three and then you're just gone into the ether and then you come back and you're like where was i (laughs) the second one yeah (laughs) yeah it's like and i i don't anytime i've had anesthesia i like don't remember what happened so you're like was i alive like did i just teleport (laughs) somewhere else like how relaxing yeah, yeah, it kind of it kind of reminded me of how a lot of my friends describe their experience with ketamine and I've never done ketamine before, but the way that they describe it as like a dissociative, I was like, okay, this is this kind of reminds me of that, but it was so hard to like put my finger on the the entire experience. So, <laughs> so yes, psychedelics for people can be fun, but the way we're talking about it today is in use for like assisted therapy. Why do you think psychedelics can be so powerful for therapeutic assistance? Sorry, listeners, if you hear that little snoring in the background, that is my sweet pit bull mixed dog, Stevie. She is napping in the back on the couch, um, and the recording will probably pick up her cute little snores. So I hope it's not too distracting. Uh, I just wanted to be near her. Hmm. Well, I think that... um... Psychedelics can help you see yourself in a different context. And I think that can be really powerful for people because we tend to attach ourselves to a story or narrative that we tell about ourselves that obviously... um, Like of who we are. Yeah, of who we are. And and that's not always the, the most nuanced or the most full truth, right? And I think with psychedelics, it kind of helps you detach from that narrative and see yourself in a more compassionate light. I think it also kind of helps you look at your problems and your issues that you're facing in life with less attachment and kind of it, it gives you that pathway to the solution. Um, and you're like, oh, well, this this makes so much more sense. It's like an aha moment almost. And I think for people with trauma um, who are trying to process and heal that trauma, it's, it's powerful because in a sober state, it's very hard to confront that trauma. It's very hard to even think about it, right? Put yourself back in that place where you're traumatized. It can actually lead to people spiraling and, you know, re-traumatized. Yeah, re-traumatized, triggered, and just having a hard time doing the day-to-day stuff. And I think psychedelics, when taken in a safe, um, supportive environment, can help people with trauma like face that experience that they had and come to terms with it. Um, like, I think the term is radical acceptance. So accepting that difficult experience, that traumatic experience, and not necessarily blaming yourself for it, but holding it in a way that acknowledges that it happened to you and it 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 impacts you and it still is impacting you and may go on to impact you for the rest of your life, but that's not that's not your fault. That's not, um, that doesn't make you a terrible or a broken person. You're mm-hmm. just, you're human. So I think it helps you see yourself from a more, um, a human humanistic perspective. Yeah. How did your psilocybin psychedelic experience help you? 
Yeah, so when I first did psychedelics, I was struggling with suicidal thoughts, um, suicidal ideation, and um, just feeling very overwhelmed and, you know, just passive about wanting to live anymore. And when I did uh, mushrooms for the first time, I feel like I was shown a different side of the world. Like Mm -hmm. I was in the woods, I went to school in Massachusetts, so it was fall. So, you know, the leaves were changing colors and I was just like overwhelmed with how beautiful it was. I had never Mm -hmm. seen nature through these eyes before. And um, in a way, it kind of reminded me of like why life is so special, why life is so is so important, um, why life is beautiful and at the same time, it also reminded me that living, being a human on the day-to-day is hard. Each day takes a lot out of you. And you have to acknowledge that in order to to keep going. Okay, you need to have these discount codes from our amazing advertisers. A lot of my clients, friends, and myself included, often complain of not having enough or making enough time for sex or things to help prepare for sex. Let Like a Kitten help. Instead of spending hours browsing for the perfect sex tool, let Like a Kitten help you curate a box made just for you. Right now, Like a Kitten is offering listeners 20% off and free shipping when you go to likeakitten.com slash S&S or enter code S&S at checkout. Like a Kitten will ship you a gift box with all of your erotic essentials, from vibrators and massage oils to robes and handcuffs. It's your one-stop shop for a great evening. This month, they're helping you choose your own adventure with the BYOB box, aka Build Your Own Box. You get to choose one item out of each of six categories, toys, beauty, products, lubes and cleansers, games, sexy accessories, and lingerie. Within each category, you have eight or more products you can choose from, so you can build an experience that's customized to your specific desires. And again, Like a Kitten is offering listeners 20% off and free shipping when you go to likeakitten.com slash S&S or enter code S&S at checkout. Just go to likeakitten.com slash S&S or use code S&S to get 20% off these incredible boxes. Likeakitten.com slash S&S and the link is in the episode's description. Also, if you need help knowing what to do with some of these tools, check out Beducated. Y'all, I'm obsessed with Beducated. It is a really cool addition to the work I do as a therapist where folks can really practice some of the hands-on things that we talk about and work on in session and on the podcast. Beducated is like the Netflix of sexual wellness. Remember that great sex takes work and Beducated can help you learn to realize your full pleasure potential. And here's a hot tip. You can get 65% off Beducated's yearly pass with our code S&S. They provide techniques and information to help you level up your love life. They offer expert-backed library of courses from Tantra to Kink to explore new practices and upgrade your lovemaking skills. I especially love the sensual massage category, but there are so many options. I also know a lot of folks who have struggled with orgasm and Beducated has some great orgasm courses and classes to help you learn your body more. So again, you can get 65% off Beducated's yearly pass with our code S and S just go to Beducated.com and use our coupon code S and S your 65% off will be locked in for life. That's Beducated B E D U C A T E D Beducated.com and use code S A N D S. 
S, S and S. And the link is in our episode description. Now back to the episode. Yeah, I think whenever I hear people who are maybe worried about doing psychedelic stuff, I mean, of course, there's the legal component, but also mm-hmm. people are like, oh, well, I don't want to have a quote unquote bad trip. Mm-hmm. And like, yes, of, co- of course, there are situations that one can put themselves in that are not risk aware, that maybe you don't have proper guidance, you don't mm-hmm. know where you're getting your stuff from. Like, I think that there's responsible harm reduction yeah. uh, approaches to do this. But also, I think like, what is a bad trip? Right. And I hear that you were seeing some parts of things that were reminders of like, yes, life is hard and the Mm -hmm. darkness of stuff, but that doesn't mean it's a bad trip. That means you're having to like, look at some of the intense stuff Mm -hmm. that's happening within you and within the world. And some people might be like, well, that's fucking scary. (laughs) I think it can can be right. So like, what is a, what is a bad trip? Well, I, I think it's kind of what you said, right? Like looking at those difficult, intense experiences. Um, and figuring out how to integrate it. Yeah. And and the thing that I don't like about some of the narratives being pushed out in the psychedelic world is like psychedelics are, are fun, it's healing, and but people aren't giving the full picture. And that's why I think a lot of people end up calling it a bad trip. But healing is not fun <laughs> in the moment no, it's not <laughs> like in I the know, my, my clients often when they come to see me I'm like I know sometimes you're not gonna like me or this yeah. process yep. yep yeah it's not all it's not fun like how we think about fun you're better for it in the grand scheme of things but you're it's not fun to unearth these things about yourself it's it's mm-hmm. difficult and so I think we as like psychedelic advocates have to be a bit more honest about that. I always tell people like, especially with mushrooms, like only take mushrooms if you are really ready to face all parts of yourself, because the mushrooms will take you where you need to go, not necessarily where you want to go. Um, And that's another piece of it too, is like mm -hmm. having to lean into the experience of not having so much control and having to be able to let go of control. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with my first trip, I I felt like nausea. And that's something that really makes me uncomfortable. I hate mm. that nauseous feeling like I'm going to vomit. And I did vomit on my trip. Um, but yeah, that's that's just one step of it, like feeling like you're not in control of your body. And eventually, you just have to release and just let let the mushrooms do their thing and also remind yourself that, okay, I just took some mushrooms. I'm not going to die, <laughs> you know, just to keep yourself grounded. Um, I think a way to prevent bad trips from happening. Uh, and when I what I mean this time is, is some people really can have bad trips. Like if they're around people who aren't great um, who, who make their trips worse. That's why I always tell people set and setting, you know, be with people who you really trust, who you feel safe around. Um, also do some prep work before, like talk, think about your intentions, think about why you're doing this. What do you want to work on within yourself? Um, and then also what are some things that, you know, are your limits or your boundaries, uh, within this trip? Like, you could tell your friend, hey, I don't want to talk about my parents because that's just too intense for me to handle right now. You know, maybe you're not trying to focus on that. So I think doing some safeguarding, doing some prep work, you know, 
trying to build a meditation or journaling practice um, will help prepare you for things that come up in your journey. And I know we were talking about earlier that in our culture, that if you are maybe involved in this, people make assumptions about you, but there's also this layer of the, the war on drugs and, and drug reform. As a black woman, do you feel afraid of talking about this stuff so openly? Like, are you worried that people are just going to come for you? <laughs> well, you know, I would say I've gotten to the point where I understand that I cannot control people's reactions to me. That said, I am aware of how people react or the assumptions that they make about me um, based on my story of like talking about my dad, you know, being a drug seller, being deported. I think people make a lot of assumptions about my dad, my relationship with him, my family. Um, There's this assumption that like, oh, my childhood must have been really rough. And of course, there are rough parts too. And my dad being incarcerated was one, but I also feel like my childhood was super normal in a lot of ways. Um, And I think because I grew up with a mom who is very outspoken, my mom's very loud, very political. Um, She really modeled to me what standing up for yourself looks like. Um, So I don't really worry about that so much. I think I did... Um, early on after, like I graduated from college, you know, when I was looking for a job, um, when people see that on your resume, they're like, wait, what does that mean? You work with like pharmacists or something? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I I work to legalize drugs. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, but I've gotten to the point now where I realize that this is my path, this is my purpose, and I'm not going to go, you know, work at some big corporation. I mean, I wish it were that easy so I could like get paid a a bunch of money, but I just realized that's not for me anymore. And this is what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. And when I think of psychedelics, I mean, I, I, could definitely educate myself more about the history of, of psychedelics. And from what I know, most every psychedelic has roots in indigenous and folks of color communities. Mm -hmm. So how has psychedelics become so white? (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's I mean, uh, people should read your article for a full, a full thing, (laughs) but like, you know, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is due to like the criminalization aspect, like I mentioned earlier, right. Um, a lot of substances like say, for example, cocaine, Cannabis were associated with particular immigrant groups in America. Um, Mm. And because of that, they became illegal. With psychedelics, um, mushrooms became popularized because uh, Gordon Hassan went to Oaxaca and had a velada with Maria Sabina. And he came back to America and told everybody about it. And so there are more and more folks going down. And I think part of it is because uh, through that process of like, Gordon Rosson's spreading the gospel about mushrooms, um, it became whitewashed. And in I mean, the, I guess this question sort of applies to like everything in our culture of things getting, <laughs> of things getting whitewashed. Yeah, right? yeah, that's true. That's true. I think a lot of things that we see now have origins in indigenous people's cultures or communities mm-hmm. of color. And like, okay, say for example, yoga, you know, a, I think a lot of people know that yoga comes from India, but we associate it with 
you know, white women in, in yoga pants <laughs> or Lululemon, right? And, you know, nothing wrong with the yoga pants. I have a few pairs. I mean, they do, they do look good. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, but yeah, I think it's that process of like mm-hmm. not really honoring the origins, not really honoring the people or the groups that these, these substances come from. And mm-hmm. through time, they start to become associated with a different group of people. Um, and I think, you know, like people associate psychedelics with white folks because some of the, you know, psychedelic pioneers like, um, Paul Stamets. Yeah. Paul Stamets. Michael uh, Pollan. (laughs) Oh man, you're, you're on a roll. Yes. Those, those they're both white, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, but those people, they get in the spotlight, right? Michael Pollan's book, I, I mean, I didn't read it, but from what I heard, it didn't really mention um, indigenous people. It didn't really mention a lot of women. So it's like this erasure that happens over time. People just keep mm. burying and burying um, those origins away and not uplifting them like they should. Mm-hmm. And why do you think it's so important now I mean, always, but now to make sure that there are communities like yours uh, for folks of color around psychedelic medicine. Well, I think that um, this is a this is a time where you know the world is in need of a lot of healing, um, and and on top of that, you know, we're seeing a lot of progress on the drug policy reform front. Um, we we're seeing more decrim uh, psychedelic initiatives. We're seeing more. Um, initiatives around getting, you know, sick folks, dying folks, access to psychedelics. And in my experience, that means, you know, psychedelics are going to be mainstream. Everyday people are going to have more access to it. But if they don't have the knowledge to go with that access, then that sets them up for danger. Um, Mm. I know that in my life, I've known a few people, you know, my age who've died from overdoses or other, you know, drug-related deaths, DUIs, that kind of thing. Um, And people don't use drugs in silos, right? A lot of times when you're at a party having some drinks, someone's going to come offer you some weed or some Coke and and boom, polysubstance use, right? And so we have to be aware of how these substances interact with each other in our body um, because... If you don't, then, you know, something bad can happen. Um, I know for me, when I was in college, I I had to learn the hard way, like mixing weed and alcohol (laughs) after a certain point can really fuck you up. And (laughs) I want people to know that about psychedelics. I want people to know the cultural origins of psychedelics so they can use these substances in a way that's respectful to the culture, but also to themselves. Um, so telling people like, listen, mushrooms are not a party drug. Like, <laughs> I don't, I've heard of people doing mushrooms at parties and I'm like, how? Like, why? Maybe small amounts. Yeah, maybe a small amount. Yeah, maybe a microdose, but like a couple grams, like, are you, like, what? <laughs> I don't get it. I mean, hey, everyone's different, but it's not something I would recommend. So, you know, our overdose uh, death rates are high and the government's always going to be behind in terms of, you know, investing in the harm reduction interventions that we need. So why, why does the government benefit so much from not having a harm reduction approach? 
oh man. <laughs> You're like, shit, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm like, part of me is like, do they actually benefit from it? Like maybe. I don't know. I guess it makes me think of like why we don't have comprehensive sex education. Yeah. And I think also in healthcare, how we often don't look at things from a preventative, like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. taking care of the body standpoint. It's sort of like, let's clean up the symptoms or let's clean up the mess afterwards. Cause there's yeah. so many businesses and companies and corporations that deal with the aftermath cleanup. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. That's what comes to mind for me. Oh yeah. No, no, no. That makes sense. Um, and to your question, I think it's about the government continuing on with this narrative that drugs are bad. And if you do them, bad things are going to happen to you that it gives the government, it makes the government feel like a superhero where like, where they're like, Oh, well we told you guys not to do drugs. Looks what, look what happens to people who do drugs. Um, instead of actually investing in, you know, safe consumption sites or um, handing out harm reduction materials or um, allowing research on psychedelics to happen. Um, it's it's just lazy in a way. And, and maybe um, part of what's profitable is like, you know, these companies like the Sacklers and, you know, a lot, I think a lot of people point blame at uh like the Sackler family but we also have to ask like okay well who create that infrastructure that allows you know companies like them to exist right and it's our it's our government so <laughs> yeah and just on the flip side in terms of like communities of color and psychedelics like what's some of the research that we're seeing now about the the help and the benefits of psychedelic and how that can help people with um systemic racial trauma or just, just people, uh, all people. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I always tell folks about Dr. Monica Williams's work. Um, she was doing some research on racial trauma and psychedelics and I don't know, uh, the specific outcomes of it. Um, cause I, I don't know if it was actually finished. Um, but she, yeah, her, she does a lot of research on racial trauma and its impacts and how um, MDMA can help with that. Um, and then, you know, there's there's a ton of research being done on microdosing. And I know there's some back and forth. There's like a study that came out um, last week that was like, oh, like, microdosing doesn't seem to have any positive effects. And then mm-hmm. there's other studies that say the opposite. I remember when I was working at MAPS, uh, one of their trials that they did for NDMA-assisted psychotherapy for people with PTSD, I think the number was at least 80% of the folks who participated felt like their PTSD symptoms had gone away. Um, So to me, that is really promising. Um, Of course, because of prohibition, um, a lot of the research has been hindered, so I think that's part of the reason why we need to decriminalize and legalize all these substances so we can do more research on them. And we can also have a safer supply. Like, you know, we're hearing a lot about fentanyl, um, (laughs) you know, being cut into other drugs like heroin, cocaine. That stuff wouldn't happen as often. Yeah, PSA, everyone get a testing kit so you can test (laughs) your drugs if you're going to be using them and Mm -hmm. buy a multitude of, um, oh gosh, what is it to 
go against fentanyl. Yeah. Um, yeah, there there are, there are injections that you can have on hand to help if someone's having an overdose. So if you're going to do it, you know, do it as do it in a harm reduction way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you're in New York, like I am, you can also get free up, free naloxone sent to your house from Next Distro, their harm reduction organization. You can order it offline. All you have to do is watch a video on how to administer naloxone and it's free. So that's also something that's really awesome. Um, But yeah, you know, if we legalize and decriminalize things, people would not be dying of fentanyl overdoses. Um, The supply of drugs would be much safer and we could regulate them and know what's going into them just like we do alcohol right if if um alcohol users were dying in droves like people who use other drugs we you know we'd be in a national emergency (laughs) and you know my ancestors my great aunts my great grandma they all made moonshine back in the day um (laughs) but there wasn't much regulation that went into that so you know, it's the same thing. If we could keep people safe drinking alcohol, we can do the same for other substances. It's just about taking away that stigma and coming to terms with the fact that people are going to use drugs regardless of whether you like it or not. Just like people are going to have sex. Kids, teenagers are going to have sex, whether you like it or not. We might as well equip them with the right information and education um, so they can stay safe and make smart choices. Okay, I'm usually advertising for other companies, but I really want to promote an event that I am co-hosting coming up called Into Pleasure that features a lot of past guests. I would love to see you slutty scholars there, virtually that is. You can find all of the info and buy tickets at intopleasure.com. The event is open to women and any marginalized genders, and right now the early bird, which is lasting until March 21st, full day is only $97. Into Pleasure was created by past podcast guest burlesque star Michelle Lamour. It is an all-virtual event happening on April 2nd from 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. On April 2nd, we'll we, we will dive into pleasure. We will learn from experts about sexuality, sensuality, and play. Absolutely no experience required. These classes are great if you are just starting your pleasure journey or if you are a pleasure pro. Join us for a full day of activities or you can pick and choose your own pleasure classes a la carte. I will be speaking along Alongside past podcast guests, Goddess Coco Meow and Jave DeBay, as well as Michelle Lamour and this amazing bondage duo named Leaf and Icarus. All of the sessions are super interactive and cover everything from beauty rituals to kink and rope tying and even sensual movement. We'll also be having a great virtual goodie bag featuring some really amazing advertisers. So come get into pleasure with me and get your early bird discount tickets now at intopleasure.com. Hope to see you there. Well, I know we talked about some serious things and we sadly have to wrap up soon, even though we could like dig into all these (laughs) topics so much more. So stay tuned for future episodes on on all these topics. But what would you say is like one takeaway you would want people to have who are maybe considering doing some kind of psychedelic medicine? Like, I guess like something that has been positive for you and, and what you would want people to know. Well, I would say, you know, yeah, we talked about a lot of serious things. And I said earlier that mushrooms, especially, they help you convert parts of yourself that you may not want to look at. But at the same time, it also, they also make you realize how, um, 
<laughs> how volatile and how funny life can be. So you can go from looking at this like, you know, toxic pattern in your life or trauma pattern in your life to like laughing your ass off, like within five at minutes. A at a pine cone. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah, exactly. Laughing at the most ridiculous things. And that's something that I think is really important. Um, being able to laugh, being able to laugh your ass off, laugh like a little kid and, and just get find into, your pleasure again. Yeah, exactly. Get into that giggle, just have a giggle fit, you know, uncontrollable. <laughs> I think that's so important for folks, especially folks who are holding trauma, because a lot of times we don't feel like we can laugh or like when we do laugh, it's like, huh, but it's something so beautiful about laughing with your whole body and just being uncontrollable with it. So mm, yeah, yeah. Reconnecting to your pleasure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh yes. Okay. Well, I know you have to run, but I am so grateful for this conversation. We got to start and to, to many more. How can people uh, support your uh, community and the work that you do and all that? Yes, yeah, so you can visit our website, www.pocpc.org, sign up for our email list, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and stay tuned for more events. Yeah, and again, listeners, this is mostly geared towards like people in the mental health space, but it is open to whomever. If you check out the Sexual Health Alliance, we have an event uh, coming up on the last weekend uh, of March. Um, so come check that out. Um, if it's will be speaking with a bunch of other awesome people. Um, so yeah, hope to see you all then. And don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Thank you.